And you need to be very reflexive. You need to basically never be arrogant, never assume that you know how something works because, you know, these, these contexts are so different from what you're used to and there's going to be different people. Hello and welcome to Exploring Digital Spheres. My name is Wouter Bernhardt and I wanted to share with you this fascinating conversation I had with Nicolas Friderici on digital entrepreneurship in Africa. Nicolas made many trips to the continent during the time he was working for the World Bank, as well as the GeoNet project by the Oxford Internet Institute. Now Nicolas has set up his own research project at the Humboldt Institute for Internet and Society. Nicolas gave me an insight in what it takes to set up a tech business in one of the innovation hubs in Africa, how business models differ from those in the West and what kind of problems they run into setting up shop. We speak about Johannesburg in South Africa, Kigali in Rwanda and Nairobi, the capital of Kenya, as places where digital entrepreneurship has led to significant economic development. Here is our conversation. Could you maybe talk a bit about the first time you went to Africa? I don't really have a concept. Of course, Africa is a massive continent as well. Lots of different countries. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your reasons why you wanted to go in the first place and then what your first experience was. Yeah, I think my personal motivation was always about finding a place that is as different from Germany as possible. And of course, I also had cliches in my mind. Where, where, where are you from? From Germany originally, uh, from the area of Göttingen. Uh, and so, you know, I left Germany quite, quite early in my adult life because I felt this is boring. Everything works here. Everything is fairly, everyone is fairly well off. Everyone has a job. Uh, you know, even at the time, I think we had almost full employment when I left. And I wanted to just discover a different, uh, different context. And I have to say that, uh, you know, I've matured as well. So I think I also had those stereotypes in mind that Africa would be, you know, there would be lots of infrastructure problems, there would be lots of poverty. And, uh, you know, I had to realize, well, in many senses, it's actually not that different, or the difference doesn't consist of Africa being poorer or, you know, worse equipped. Um, that's not always the case. It's just that structures, legacies, histories are, are different and therefore, um, you know, business models are different and startups are different. So this was really my, my motivation. You know, how, how, how would a place look that I can't imagine that seems to be very different from Germany? And then you realize, okay, these things are actually quite similar. These things are, are quite different. Um, yeah. And so Nairobi in particular is a very special place. It's just extremely vibrant. Um, you know, the, the sheer size of the city. Um, the, How many people are living in Nairobi? Oh, it's difficult to say because it's this huge sprawl, but I think we're now at like 12 or 16 million, depending on where you draw the line. It's, it's very difficult to, to say. And so this, I think this is, you know, this is clear in the statistics, right? Africa is a young continent and, and Kenya and Nairobi is, is no exception. So this vibrancy that you get from a lot of young people trying, trying to do stuff and trying to, 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 to change and, 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 and create things and create enterprises and, and so forth, that is something that I had not experienced in, in Germany and definitely not in, in Washington, D.C., either so you know that was very um that was very fascinating also i think uh inspiring how, how long was your first trip oh these world bank trips are quite short uh, i think like uh, uh not even a week like four four or five days this was also then part of what drove me into doing this uh, in research because at the world bank I mean, it's great. They send you to interesting places, but you're always there for a short time. You stay in a fancy hotel, you have a driver, and you're not really in touch with what is actually happening, not even in the cities, not even with those entrepreneurs. So I felt this is so 
interesting and fascinating, this phenomenon of technology entrepreneurship in, in Africa, of these innovation hubs that had been created, kind of like co-working spaces where these entrepreneurs would, would convene uh, and, and create communities. This is so fascinating. I want to do this justice and study this in more depth. And that's why I started then my, my PhD and then later my entire research uh, agenda on this. And then I did longer trips, like a month or two months um, uh, at a time to basically have time to interview people and, and really immerse yourself. What, what is your background? How did you end up at the World Bank? Uh, yeah, I've always had an interdisciplinary background. It's difficult to uh, really pigeonhole me into any sort of discipline or even uh, profession. I think after my master's at Michigan State University, that's how I got to the, to the U.S., that was an interdisciplinary degree. I just didn't want to go back to Germany, and I could basically, you know, try a corporate career at Deutsche Telekom, where I had an uh, uh, an internship before, and I was like, I, I don't think I want to do that. And I talked to an Indian colleague in Michigan State, and she said, you should try what was at the time called ICT4D, uh, Information Communication Technologies for Development. You should talk to your supervisor. He knows this guy at the World Bank, um, Tim Kelly, who is, a, who is a very interesting researcher. People can look up his, his reports um, and try to get in touch with him because um, she felt that ICT4D would be a good thing for me because it combines all these different disciplines. You need to basically be a little bit of a sociologist, a little bit of a geographer, a little bit of a technology scholar, a little bit of a management scholar, a little bit of a policy guy. And you need to have a little bit of a cultural sensitivity. And you need to be very reflexive. You need to basically never be arrogant, never assume that you know how something works because, you know, these, these contexts are so different from what you're used to and there's going to be different people. And, and she was right. You know, this was, um, you know, thankfully this worked out that I got an internship and then kind of a, a longer contract at the World Bank and that, uh, you know, never, never looked back. I just enjoy this international context and exposing myself to these, uh, you know, very new, very interdisciplinary um, uh, questions and challenges. I also knew that, you know, from those short trips, It's impossible to study those things from distance. There's just going to be incomplete data and, you know, you need to understand these realities on the ground. You need to actually talk to people. You need to understand that energy. You need to understand their, their, their aspirations, especially uh, if, you're, if you're a foreigner and if you're not from there. And so um, I designed basically a research um, a plan where I would travel to three different countries, spend a month each, because remember, I'm trying to capture a pan-African phenomenon. Uh, and I conducted a lot of interviews, I think 120 interviews with these hub managers, with entrepreneurs that were using those hubs and, yeah, try to understand, okay, there's this big hope. We can use hubs. We can use technology to change Africa. How does that work on the ground? How does that really work? What are the actual problems in, in day-to-day life? What are the actual uh, success stories in day-to-day -day life? Um, and, yeah, so, you know, wrote my, wrote my thesis on, on, on that and basically tried to stay in touch with the entrepreneurs, with the development organizations, What, what kind of digital businesses do succeed in Africa or in these, these cities that you've been? Because I feel um, if you just replicate what is already out there, that might not entirely work. So it has to be innovative, right? You have to come up with something that is maybe has not been done before, but maybe more important, something that is important for that location, for that region that people might benefit from. And maybe something also um, plays into... Uh, more cultural norms that happen more in these places than, uh, for example, in Berlin. Uh, for example, I don't, I, I don't know uh, if Uber is very big in, in Nairobi. Uh, I don't know if that's a big thing. Maybe there's other forms of transport and that 
will uh, launch into another kind of business. So what are the kind of businesses that you, you see succeed or are happening in Nairobi and other places? Yeah, I think a little bit like you um, suggest what people realized in the last maybe two, three years, some people already earlier, but in the last couple of years, it's become apparent that these same business models that the, the big ones are trying won't work. You cannot compete in these global markets with the big ones from, from Silicon Valley. And so, you know, what has transpired is that um, African digital enterprises, I think we, we find, use one of, of three strategies. One that's very common in business to business, you just have customer relationships. You've worked in maybe a bank and you saw that their information processing was terrible. So you develop a software that, um, you know, fits with that bank and you immediately have your customer right there because you worked for them before. So it's quite slow because you need to acquire your customers one by one. You do the traditional going from door to door, trying to sell your software as if it was a physical good, but it works. You know, it's a sustainable business. It's usually a small business. You usually have two employees, five employees, maybe 10 employees if, you're, if your software is good, but it works. So that's a very, very common strategy. A lot of small businesses selling customized software to, uh, to, to other businesses. Um, second strategy is what we call local information platforms. So um, you know, there's a lot of information such as news or entertainment um, that people love to consume, that people are interested about, but that they cannot find on you know, the, the big uh, blogs and, and newspapers anyway from, from the north. So you know, it's very easy to set up a blog. It's very easy to set up a news uh, website. So this is what um, you know, a, a lot of entrepreneurs have, have, have then done. The third strategy we find the most interesting. We call them last-mile platforms. So um, even if a consumer has a smartphone, they may have a poor quality smartphone. They may ha not have the bandwidth. They may not know how to use it. And if you're a farmer, you know, somewhere in a rural place, let's say in, in, in Ghana, because that's where one of those last mile platforms is, um, you know, you don't have a smartphone at all. You don't have a phone at all. So these last mile platform companies basically say, okay, if our um, customers don't have the technology, they are not able to use it independently. We build this analog structure. So we put agents in place. We put kiosks in place where people can physically go. And so basically the back end is software, is a digital platform, but the front end that faces the consumer is analog. Uh, you know, they would set up those structures. And then if you reach a certain critical mass, you know, that's still, uh, that's still a viable business model and that can, that can, stay, that can scale um, uh, quite well. Could, could you give me an example of that last one? Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of e-commerce companies that, that do this, basically set up you know, drivers and, and agents and so forth. But to me, the most interesting example is a company called AgroCenter in, in Ghana. Um, so they've basically seen, okay, we have these agricultural information services where farmers get SMS about this and that. That's not, that's not enough. You know, the, the supply chain is the problem. Farmers have this produce on their farms. It's sitting there. There's big companies uh, uh, like Nestle or, or Guinness, you know, the big food companies that need that produce but have no idea where it is and how much is there and when. Um, so there's a huge kind of information gap, uh, but also a gap in the physical supply chain. At some point, that produce then, then has to get there. Um, and so I think unlike other companies, they realize these farmers often don't have phones at all. Um, if they do, they're going to be very simple phones. So what they did is, you know, we established a, a, a network of, I think, 20, and then now I think it's 30 or 40 agents who are, you know, people who are in the villages talking to farmers every day. 
How does it look? How was the harvest? What do you have? Which type of produce do you have there? So they, you know, actual people go there and do the stock management with the farmers. Um, so there is basically an, a human interface to the digital platform. And then it doesn't stop there. Once you have the stock levels, you basically now have a regional stock management system, right? You know across the region what the smallholder farmers have. Now you interface with the big companies, the Nestle's, the, the Guinnesses. What do you need? When, etc. So now the company is that interface there as well. And then you need to figure out the supply chain. You know, there's drivers, things get lost along the way, things get stolen, etc. Well, that can also be solved with technology. So they sit someone on the truck with the smartphone again or a tablet who has those stock levels. Okay, on this truck is such and such. That person that is an employee of AgroCenter stays on that truck, accompanies the delivery. And so now you've created not just an information system, but an entire logistics system um, that is powered by digital technology. So there's a lot of analog structures there, right? There's people uh, at all instances, human interface at all instances, and the digital technology is in the background. So it's blending this digital technology at the back end, um, analog structures, uh, uh, people, physical delivery, uh, logistics um, uh, structures, etc. at the front end. That's what these last mile platforms do. Um, these businesses, these people that you have been investigating, um, these digital entrepreneurs, uh, are they mostly Africans or are they people coming from other places investing in Africa or setting a business up because they see potential there? Yeah, we said at the beginning of the conversation that Africa is a very uh, diverse place and that cannot be overstated. So the answer to your question depends on where you are. Um, I think a lot of media uh, organizations or media reporting and development organizations have confused Nairobi with Africa. If you look to Nairobi specifically, I think it is the case that <clears throat> a lot of people from um, Europe, there's Swedes, there's definitely lots of German uh, software engineers, a lot of American um, uh, entrepreneurs come there because it's kind of the, the new frontier. Some American entrepreneurs actually call it that, you know. Um, maybe a little bit like me, they were bored in their context and they found you know, their, their high-income contracts to be lacking uh, a challenge. So they went to Africa, quote-unquote, which was actually then Nairobi, which is a, you know, a very interesting and vibrant and, and, and also convenient place to live for, for people from, from high-income countries. So, um, yeah, and, and, and tried and mostly failed, but some of them st stuck around. So Nairobi is a, is, is a diverse place in that sense, and you have a lot of white immigrants uh, uh, there from high-income countries. Maybe Kigali also, very high quality of life, very clean, very safe. But then if you look to other cities across Africa, it's, it's much less the case. Um, sometimes it will be driven by market opportunities. Nigeria is a huge market, so you have a few um, kind of investor types, venture capital types there. Um, but yeah, um, if we're excluding South Africa, of course, with its own history there and only look at, uh, at, at other um, uh, countries south of the uh, Sahara, um, Nairobi would really be the only exception where, where there's a lot of them. Usually it is Africans uh, uh, there. It should be said, though, you know, even if you're, uh, let's say, uh, you're in, in, in Sierra Leone, you're from Sierra Leone, probably uh, the, if you're an entrepreneur there, you're not from a rural area and you're not from a, 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 the poorer parts of society. Um, so this is another 
I think disappointment that, that has slowly started to, to appear with digital entrepreneurship, it tends to be those people who are already well-connected, who have some capital to spare, who are the most successful entrepreneurs. Not because the ones from, let's say, uh, a rural part of, of the country don't have the ideas or the skills, but they're usually not as well-connected. They don't have the sticking power, even just financially, um, to, to make an enterprise happen. Because I think we, we know that from Berlin and Silicon Valley as well, it's usually the ones who uh, you know, can afford it to be an entrepreneur, who can stick around long enough um, to, to, to make it. For, for years, for decades, maybe for hundreds of years, um, the continent as a whole, but also individual countries in Africa have economically been lacking behind, uh, especially um, in relation to the West. And I feel this idea was with digital technology, with innovation, telephony, the internet, um, Africa could maybe get up there, leapfrog, right? This idea of leapfrogging um, over this past lack of economic growth. Ha has something like that happened? Has Africa leapfrogged in that sense? The short answer is no. Um, the slightly longer answer is there have been very impressive developments. There have been uh, interesting innovations and applications The leapfrogging has maybe happened also in the technological sense that, you know, Africans have skipped fixed line telephony and then fixed line Internet uh, as an access um, technology. So in this very narrow sense, maybe it has happened in this broader sense that you mentioned that economic development would catch up with the rest of the world. It hasn't happened. Why is that? Well, from our research, we would conclude that if these digital enterprises tend to be local. They tend to create um, analog structures in their environment. They tend to address local problems. It's very difficult for them to reach customers in the global, uh, in the global north, in Europe. Sometimes they do that with outsourcing, but then it would be ad hoc. It wouldn't be those very scalable business models of the Google, of the Facebook. They just are not in a position to do that. So if you can only reach customers in high-income uh, countries ad hoc, if otherwise you focus on uh, customers and markets in your environment, That's going to be your threshold. That's going to be your growth threshold. So that's what we see in our research. These businesses are super innovative. They're super impressive, but they reach a threshold. And this is where you are basically stuck if you're an African country, an African city, with the economic legacy you have, with the infrastructural uh, problems you may have, with the uh, institutional problems, you know, education system, healthcare system, and so forth. I think what we're saying is that relative to the hype and hope that has been around for maybe two, three, four, five years now. Um, things are not as easy. Things are incremental. You know, entrepreneurs are learning, they're adapting, they are um, creating markets sometimes, and, and they're not just there. And these business models are not so easy. But that doesn't mean that nothing is happening. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't invest in this agenda. That doesn't mean that this is all futile or useless. Um, I think I, I have a very you know, positive and optimistic outlook on, on what digital entrepreneurship can, can mean for, for Africa. I just feel that some of the attention is, is misguided. I think we should look to some of those um, 
entrepreneurs who are coming up with these uh, business models, such as last mile platforms, then look into new innovation paths where there's really innovations, uh, technological innovations that fit for local context and that can be exported because this is where, you know, the true growth can come from. So I just wish that we, you know, div- uh, directed our attention towards those issues a little more and didn't have the simplistic idea of leapfrogging, of copying the business models from Silicon Valley. I think that's all that all we're trying to say with our research. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. That was my conversation with Nicolas Friedrichi. You can find links to his research in the show notes. And as always, visit hiig.de to discover new research projects and events. In the next episode, a conversation between Jessica Schmeiss and Marcel Peerlich about the challenges and advantages of AI-based online marketing... This was Exploring Digital Spheres. Catch you on the flip side.